0: Hi everyone. Welcome to the GALT Museum. Thank you so much for coming to our Wednesday at the GALT program. My name is Janae Redgrave. I work here as the Community Program Coordinator. So, um, for today's program, I have my colleague Graham Rutan. Uh, He's our marketing and communications person here at the GALT. And uh, the reason I invited him here today is our upcoming special exhibit is called Worlds Imagined. And it's all about um, mapping, um, and in particular, maps of imaginary places in in, uh, literature, in um, film. So it's all about mapping. So that is opening up at the end of the month. Uh, So Graham offered to give a talk um, related to that topic. Um, So, uh, Graham spent his first 20 years of life growing up in Vancouver Island as part of a small ward of the LDS Church in Duncan, B.C. Uh, After serving a mission in Mexico for the church for two years, he moved to Lethbridge, where he completed a B.A. in History and taught at the local branch of the LDS Institute of Religion. Uh, Since completing his history degree, he has worked in marketing and public relations in a variety of public sector fields. Um, among other fields of study, Graham has a strong interest in Mormon teachings, practice, and development, as well as sociological and anthropological aspects of Mormon communities. And he's going to talk a bit more about that today. So let's give Graham a warm welcome.
1: I I really wanted to, um, like I really really appreciate the new exhibit that's going to be going up about worlds imagined and it's really captivated my imagination for months since we started developing all the stuff um, for use in that exhibit and um, when I wrote the description for this program I used a quote from a podcast about utopias Um, and the quote is very interesting that all structures are, in some ways, ideology made manifest. And that really spoke to me. So, um, the direction I want to go with this presentation is looking at how the structure of the Platte of Zion, which was used as the base land-use map for Mormon communities in southern Alberta, like Hartston, Raymond, Sterling, Graf, and others, how the ideology and theology of early Mormon leaders influenced the way that they drew the maps and then subsequently how those maps have changed. And then I want to track the progress of the development of communities and the building of structures by the LDS church today has shifted and look at what kind of ideologies have influenced that shift. And I imagine all of that inside of this world imagined that is encompassed by um, Mormon and LDS ideology and theology. So that's kind of a broad outline of the direction I'll be going. Um yeah, if there are any questions, there's about 10- 15 minutes I've planned at the end of this, and we'll go through those and if there's more afterwards, I'm happy to stay and, and chat about any questions that you guys have. Um, yeah, so since 1820 or 1830 rather, the Mormon Church has been focused on building communities. Early church history is full of stories of individuals coming together to build houses and fences and barns, as well as other structures like temples, And even shopping malls, towns, cities, territories, and states. The uh, state animal of Utah is the honeybee, which stands for the productiveness and the hive-like community mentality of early Mormon colonists and leaders. The physical communities varied from place to place, but after 1833 they had a blueprint to work off of for all future communities that was called the Platte of Zion. Over 500 hamlets, villages, towns, and cities used the Platte of Zion as the base map. The beliefs of early Mormon leaders, uh, sorry, the belief of early Mormonism shaped the way that Joseph Smith designed and realized the plan in his own time, but those beliefs are always changing in Mormonism, meaning that the plan changed over time, both in its structure and layout, and also in its execution. There is a strong argument to be made that. Uh, that many of those original principles have been discarded by church leadership over the past 50 to 75 years. More recent buildings and development plans and proposals demonstrate a marked shift in theological and community priorities for the LDS church. It is rare that beliefs and teachings are clearly denounced by the church leadership. It's very common...
2: Oh, my bad.
1: Yeah, it's very common... um, for, it is usual for the church leadership to simply stop talking about a topic and move on from it, thus moving the center of the discourse to a new theological place. In a 2001 interview with Time magazine, then president of the church, Gordon Hinckley, answered a question about an old teaching that was then embarrassing to the church, quote, I don't know that we teach it, I don't know that we emphasize it. I named this presentation the center place. This was in reference to the temple or a church building being the physical center point of the Platte of Zion.
2: It is also in reference
1: to the way that current theology of the church has moved the center place of the religion as a whole over time, which has in turn turn changed the way that the church pursues community building and colonization. The world imagined by Mormons over the decades has subtly shifted substantially in ways that are extremely difficult to identify because of the centralized And the correlated historical narrative that is produced and curated by church leaders and by their administration. I grew up on Vancouver Island. I lived there for about 20 years and I lived in Mexico for two years and then I moved to southern Alberta to pursue my BA in history. After I graduated from the University of Lethbridge, I got a job working at the town of Cardston as a communications officer and the assistant to the CAO. I spent a lot of time looking at land use maps. And I led a project to catalogue and date all of the 3,000 or so bylaws that had been passed by town council since its incorporation in 1901. I walked to work most days for the five years that I lived in Carlsman. I walked the extremely long blocks and I crossed the extremely wide roads. Those roads and the very wide blocks were foreign feeling to me. The way that the streets and blocks were laid out was strange. They used so much land and had a lot of space that were in the centers of the blocks that were hidden from view and they were often unused or less used. As the town expanded over time, new roads and subdivisions got shorter and more walkable. Many of the less traveled through roads were capped to create subdivisions with less through traffic, which made for safer streets for pedestrians and children. The lots became much smaller and more compact. I knew when I worked at the town of Carson that the original land use plan for Cardston and other Mormon towns in the area had been based upon a map drawn up in the 1800s by Joseph Smith. Recently I ran across an episode of the design podcast, 99% Invisible, that talked about the history of the Platte of Zion and what it means for life in Salt Lake City. I hope that I can speak to the effect that using the platte has had in communities in southern Alberta. I'll give you three examples of how I experienced life in Cardston that relate to the layout of the town under the plan. I lived nine blocks away from work. I would often walk to work even in the winter. I'd walk through a slightly newer section of town before I hit the old blocks. The newer blocks were about half as massive as the old blocks, but they had halved the size of the residential lots, so that I passed nearly twice the number of houses in the shorter blocks as the larger blocks that took me even longer to walk. So density increased dramatically in the newer subdivisions that were being built in Carson. I had a cousin that was a few, older, few years older than me who lived in Calgary. After failing her driver's test about five times, she had her parents drive her down to Raymond so she could take her sixth driving test because the roads were so wide she felt sure she couldn't fail the driving test. And she was right. <laughs> I was visiting friends in Raymond back in 2009 for the first time. I had never been in Raymond before. I was driving my car alone with no Google Maps to assist me. I had an address for the house. But the directions, which read something like 55, 200W, 400W, were so inscrutable that I had to drive twice around the entire town to find where I was going. (laughs) To understand the directions, you have to know where the center of town is. You have to know where you are in relation to the center of town. And you have to know where the cardinal directions are. This was impossible while driving around at night. I want to take a look at the ways that Joseph Smith's belief in early teachings influenced the choices that were made in the original designs of the Platte of Zion, and how this evolved over time. I'm going to look at how the plat was used in southern Alberta to establish colonies, or missions as Charles Oracard called them. I also want to take a look at the way that the LDS Church has engaged in community building and land management in the past three decades, and look at how their current practices are different from the community building and colonization that took place in the first century of the Church's existence. In 1830, Joseph Smith officially began Mormonism with a very small group of believers in New York State. Joseph and his followers were fervent advocates for the religion, and Smith began sending his followers on short missions to different regions in the Atlantic Northwest to expand his following. This expanded quickly, and by 1837, Smith had sent his first two missionaries to England. The instructions of missionaries in all regions was to convert people to Mormonism and to get them to emigrate to Zion, or to the current headquarters of the church. Those headquarters moved from time to time from New York State to Ohio to Illinois during the lifetime of Joseph Smith and later to Salt Lake City under Brigham Young. But for a brief period in 1939, Smith declared the new and permanent center place of the church to be officially in Jackson County, Missouri. In the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a book of scripture that was largely written or dictated by Joseph Smith, the term Zion appears about 200 times. The context of these uses varies widely from from a term implying things ranging from a community of believers to an actual physical location and to a city past, present, or future. The concept of Zion and plans to construct a physical community of that name preoccupied Joseph Smith for years. As with previous utopian plans, Joseph Smith's utopia was to include a physical layout as well as a very specific government structure that would attempt to create and maintain a perfect society. The idea of utopias and printing down instructions on how they are to be built and governed had been around for centuries by Smith's time. In 1602, Italian-Dominican philosopher Tommaso Campanella was arrested for heresy and sedition. While in prison, he wrote La Cita del Sole, or The City of the Sun, a book that presented a vision of a unified, peaceful world government under a theocratic um, oligarchy. In the closing sections of the book, Campanella predicted that the Spanish monarch, in alliance with the papacy, would construct a holy city. And by constructing that holy city, they would usher in the ultimate theocratic world government. At the same time Campanella was writing The City of the Sun, Johannes Valentinus Andrei, a German theologian, was promoting a Protestant utopian movement called Rosicrucianism. This this movement likely inspired several attempts at utopian Christian communities in Nuremberg in 1628 called the Unio Christiana, which was attempted later in Stuttgart in the 1660s, and another utopian fraternity called Antilia, which was developed in the Baltic region during the Thirty Years' War. Andrei's work,
2: Repubblica
1: Christianopolitanae Descriptio, or Description of the Republic of Christianopolis, well that's way easier, (laughs) lays out the city-state's civic plan. Many of the ideas laid out in both of these works, and many more, can be broadly identified in Smith's ideal community as well. The site of Zion, the physical location where this city was to be built, was disclosed by Smith to his followers over a period of months. In January 1831, he said that God would provide for the Mormons quote, a land of promise, but did not disclose where that would be. On June 6th, he gathered a group of followers to proselyte in Missouri, promising them that God would reveal the location of a quote, land of inheritance to them if they were successful. On July 20th, Smith wrote, Hearken, uh, hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together, in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, this is the land of promise, and this is the place for the city of Zion. And thus saith the Lord your God, if you will receive wisdom, here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now called Independence is the center place, and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. In June 1833, Joseph Smith and his two counselors in the first presidency prepared a plat for the city of Zion. A plat is a land use or a development plan for the layout of the city. Frederick G. Williams drew the plat, which called for bishop's storehouses and 24 temples in the center of the city. There we go, plat. So you can see here that all around the edges are the instructions for how they were to construct plot, Very detailed instructions in most cases. Those three off-coloured squares in the middle were to be the, the only non-residential lots in the entire town or city. Um, the centre one and the one to the right were both to contain 12 temples each and the one to the right was intended for the bishop's storehouses. So you can definitely see similarities between the way that Cardston, McGrath, Sterling, and all the others are laid out, where everything is on a very strict, rigid grid, but there are some differences that you don't see in some of the communities. You see it a little bit more in Sterling. Um, one of the really interesting bits about the way that they laid the city out is they have a lot of the blocks alternating from lots being laid out this way, with the, faces, with the houses facing out that way, and lots that face this way. So in most of the lots, you would never actually see into another house you would only look at the broad side of their house and their fence line. This entire plat was supposed to be one mile long on each side. Uh, At the time, in June 1833, this was more than ten times the amount of property that the church had been able to buy up since beginning to purchase land there in 1831. One of the most striking features of the plat is that its blocks were larger than any other, there we go, um, larger than any other city blocks, either in New York or in Philadelphia. It also featured huge street allowances for all the roadways, a set of central blocks for religious buildings and extremely large property lots, both for the time and now. The large size of the lots was an attempt to encourage residents to grow crops, to grow orchard, and to even have livestock in town. Each city block was to measure 10 acres. The long skinny lots were to be one quarter acre each, and Smith wanted all the houses in the city to be built out of either brick or stone. Houses were all to be set back from the streets by exactly 25 feet. The land in front and behind the house was to be used for gardens and orchards. There were to be no stables allowed in town and no lot was supposed to be allowed to have more than one house on it. Smith intended for the plat to house between 15,000 and 20,000 residents, and then once that whole area was filled, they would build another city on an adjoining grid. The plan included no parkland, no community spaces, and no public buildings. It did not lay out where the agricultural spaces would be, except to say that there would be enough agricultural land directly adjoining the city to sustain its entire population on either the north and south or the east and west, whichever worked best for that particular area they were building in as they expanded. Sam Greenspan of 99% Invisible wrote about the Platts design, this imagined city would offer the best parts of the city, infrastructure, education, and community, but without vice and crime. Joseph Smith thought that this could be achieved by giving residents lots of space. It would essentially be a rural city. Only two months after the design of this first plat, Smith and his counselors created a revised plat for the area, which increased the land required to 1.5 miles squared, which was even more land than the church had at the time. And it's interesting that the plat changed so substantially over only two months. The city near independence was never built, though. By July 1833, a mob had destroyed a church-operating uh, a church operating printing press that was publishing a religious newsprint called The Evening and the Morning Star, and they were driven out of Jackson County in 1833. Several years of tension across Missouri finally culminated in the Mormon War of 1838. Joseph Smith assembled a militia called Zion's camp to retake their property and seek revenge, but the militia were unsuccessful in reclaiming their lands. This militia was called Zion's camp. Governor Lilburn Boggs issued Missouri Executive Order 44, which directed that quote, the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Their outrages are beyond all description. Smith and his followers were forced to abandon their plans to build Zion in Missouri. Currently, the land that was purchased by the church is in possession of three splinter groups of Smith's original religious movement. The Community of Christ owns most of the 63.27 acres that was ultimately purchased by Edward Partridge for the church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the LDS Church, owns the next largest portion, the smallest portion of the land, including the actual spot that was dedicated for the temple that would be the center place of this expanding city of Zion, Is currently owned by an organization known as the Church of Christ, previously also known as the Church of Christ Temple Lot. This church was founded by Granville Hedrick, a Mormon who chose not to go to the Salt Lake Valley when the Saints left Nauvoo, Illinois, instead returning with his followers to independence in 1867. One of the main parts of the governance of Zion was intended to be the law of consecration. This law was first explored by Smith in 1831 in effect members of the church were asked to deed all of their property to the church the bishop of the church would then quote grant an inheritance or a stewardship back to the members individuals and families who would care for and work the property and would be expected to turn over any surplus resources from their property to the bishop at the end of the year this can be understood as a form of theocratic communism in the words of LDS Scriptures, DNC 42, 30-34, Behold, thou wilt remember the poor, and consecrate of thy properties for their support, that which thou hast to impart unto them, with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. And inasmuch as ye impart of your substance unto the poor, ye will do it unto me, and they shall be laid before the bishop of my church. So you're deeding all your property to the church. After they are laid before the bishop of my church, and after he has received these testimonies concerning the consecration of the properties, that they cannot be taken from the church. Agreeable to my commandments, every man shall be made accountable to me, a steward over his own property, or that which he has received by consecration, as much as is sufficient for himself and his family. So once you deeded your property, you would then get it back as a trust from the church, which you would be expected to work and improve, and only keep as much as was necessary for your household. And again, if there shall be properties in the hands of the church or any individuals of it, more than is necessary for their support after this first consecration, which is a residue to be consecrated unto the bishop, it shall be kept to administer to those who have not from time to time, that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. Therefore, the residue shall be kept in my storehouse to administer to the poor and needy, as shall be appointed by the high council of the church. And the bishop in his council. So it's an interesting structure where land is held by one communal organization, a religious theocracy. It is then trusted back to individuals who donate surplus back to the theocratic, um, back to the theocracy who then distribute it to the people who did not generate sufficient for their households. To me, this reads like a form of voluntary serfdom, or church-led communism instead of state run Under this law, it's clear that the church itself was intended to own the whole city and people would live there. I want to talk a little bit about the gathering aspect of early Mormon missions. Today, the church discourages people from moving to Utah or to Zion, or Utah for the purpose of coming to Zion. Church leaders officially redefined the term Zion to mean anywhere a unit of the church is organized, and they encourage members to stay in their own communities to build up the church there. However, for over a century, the primary definition of Zion was the headquarters of the church, and missionaries were strongly encouraged to send converts and members to move to Zion. The idea was to gather as many believers into one place to begin building and expanding a physical kingdom of God on the earth from a center place. This concept is called catalytic millennialism. The idea that by building a certain community or a structure in the right way will actually trigger the second coming of Jesus. Joseph Smith taught that the second coming of Jesus was going to happen within or just after his own lifetime. Smith taught his followers that if they established Zion, Jesus would come and establish his theocratic government in their city. So it was imperative to physically gather as many faithful members of the church to that location as possible. As people sold or left their homes in Europe and Canada and the U.S., they would move to where the church was located at the time. This meant um, that when they arrived, they needed lodging and they often needed help purchasing and building homes. Starting in 1831, Smith began this system of theocratic communism, or the law of consecration, to try to control as much land and assets as possible and to provide land and housing for new arrivals to his communities. This system, oh, sorry, um, this system required that members deed their property to the church and they would then be allowed to occupy and work their lands as a stewardship. Members were expected to garden and farm on their own land so that they were sustained by their own labors. Shortly after announcing this system, Smith made living the law of consecration mandatory for membership in the church. When Mormons were driven out of Missouri, Smith blamed their expulsion from the state in part as a divine consequence. For members not fully committing to living the law of consecration after Smith's death Brigham Young emerged as the leader of the main body of the religion after a succession crisis Young led a large sect of Mormon colonists into the Rocky Mountains they settled in the Salt Lake Valley Young quickly began building the city of Salt Lake based on the Platte of Zion beginning with surveying the valley starting from a center block that was dedicated to a temple and to other buildings for religious ceremonies and worship services. As more Mormons emigrated to Utah from eastern Canada and the US as well as Europe, Young sent out colonies to firmly establish a Mormon presence up and down the Rocky Mountains. This is another aerial shot of Salt Lake where you can see the grid-like pattern, very similar to the southern Alberta communities, with the temple being smack dab in the center of the original series of blocks. And this is the Mormon Corridor, a.k.a. the Mormon Belt and the Jell-O-Belt. This is actually from Wikipedia, those terms are from Wikipedia. Um, In 1855, Young began requiring members of the church to again deed their property back to the church um, as part of the Law of Consecration. In 1874, Young began a new form of the Law of Consecration called the United Order of Enoch. This had some significant differences from the original way the system operated in Ohio and Missouri. Rather than consider the individual property as a stewardship, which it still was, the main focus was on the means of production as a stewardship. All the members of the community would receive shares of the net income from the means of production as a type of cooperative. Some of these means of production include things like hat factories, tailor shops, soap factories, boot and shoe factories, machine shops, woodworking shops, sawmills, and dairies. And in several of the biographies of Orson uh, Charles O'Ricard, he notes that in Cardston he set up several cooperatives in the first several years primarily to start actually getting the tools and the materials required to build uh, houses and larger edifices in the region. The distribution of shares from these ventures was not equal across all people. It often depended on the amount of land that individuals initially deeded to the church through the cooperative. This cooperative style of theocratic communism was used in at least 200 Mormon communities that surrounded Salt Lake City including St. George, Utah and Bunkerville, Nevada. These cooperative systems were also short-lived Although they began only in 1874, most of them were defunct by the time of Young's death in 1877. You can find lots of interesting stories about how the United Order of Enoch worked in historian Leonard Arrington's phenomenal book, An Economic History of the Latter-day Saints, 1830-1900. One fascinating story is of the community of Orderville. Arrington says, Orderville had been founded in an atmosphere of dire poverty, and the common action which took place in the order made it possible for members to eat and dress better than they had for years, better, in fact, than many residents in surrounding settlements where the United Order had not functioned successfully. When the Utah Southern Railroad was completed to Milford, Utah, however, the rich mines at Silver Reef, not far from Orderville, were exploited, and within five years, more than $10 million worth of silver was extracted. Orderville's neighbors, profiting profiting from this boom, suddenly found themselves able to buy imported clothing and other store commodities. The saints at Orderville became old-fashioned. Orderville adolescents began to envy the young people in the surrounding communities. A young man wanted a new set of pants. This is Leonard Arrington. This is a set of pants. But the rules of Orderville said that all clothing must come from the same bolt of cloth, since all were to be equal and there was to be no inequality among them. His pants had no holes, and his request for new pants was denied. (laughs) The primary business of the community's cooperative was raising and shearing wool from sheep. When the lamb's tails were docked that year, the young man surreptitiously gathered up the docked wool and sheared it off and he stored it in sacks. When he was assigned to take the load of wool to Nephi, he secretly took all the lamb's tail wool in the, in the load and exchanged it for a pair of store-bought pants.
2: <gasps>
1: On his return, He wore his new pants to the next community dance. His entrance caused a sensation. The story is that one young lady, so impressed with his new pants, rushed to him, embraced him, and kissed him. (sighs) (laughs) The president of the order demanded an explanation, and when it was truthfully given, he said, according to your own story, these pants belong to the order. You are requested to appear before the Board of Management tomorrow evening at half-past eight and to bring the store pants with you. At the meeting, the young brother was commended for his enterprise, but was reminded that all pants must be made of the cloth from the same bolt. However, to prove its goodwill, the Board of Management agreed to have the store pants unseamed and used as a pattern for all pants made in the future, and further the young man in question would get them. First pair. <laughs> As these cooperatives were dissolved, the memories of those who had lived in them became increasingly nostalgic. <coughs> Writes Arrington, with the disintegration of their collective institutions, after 10 years of cooperative living in some cases, the older members began to reflect on the advantages of their previously enjoyed communal experience over the encroaching spirit of competitive individualism. The chafing under restrictive regulation. The disagreements, the yearning for privacy were all forgotten, and their memories were sweet. Almost every published reminiscence of life under the order mentions it as the closest approximation to a well-ordered, supremely happy Christian life that was possible of achievement in human society. The law of consecration and the united order of Enoch were intended as attempts to eradicate poverty and promote a sense of unity within Mormon communities. The systems bear many similarities to Marxist communism. From one Mormon scripture in Moses 7.18, there is a highlight to that similarity. The Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. While I won't go into all the similarities between the systems, it is an interesting and a fruitful comparison that others have studied. Today, the law of consecration is still something that all endowed members of the LDS Church explicitly take an oath to obey as part of the endowment ceremony in LDS temples, but it is not enforced among the general population of members. Instead, all members in good standing are expected to pay the church 10% of their annual income through tithing. However, many prophets and leaders of the church have predicted that the law of consecration, as preached by Smith, will one day be reinstituted either before or during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Even though Mormons <coughs> were forced to leave the center place of their Zion in Missouri, Joseph Smith intended for this plat to be used as a land use map to extend Zion on a grid of agricultural and residential spaces until it actually filled up the whole earth. Quote, On the north and south are to be laid off the farms for the agriculturalists of sufficient quantity of land to supply the whole plot. If it cannot be laid out without going too great a distance from the city, there must also be laid off in the east and west, where this square is thus laid off and supplied. Lay off another in the same way, and so fill up the world in these last days, and let every man live in Zion. For this is the city of Zion. in oh, sorry, 11 years after the Mormons were driven from Missouri, Joseph Smith began to campaign to become president of the United States. One of the tools he used to organize his campaign was a secret group of powerful individuals that he had created called the Council of 50. The records and the minutes of this organization have only been made public within the last five years as part of the Joseph Smith papers project undertaken by the LDS Church. John Lee, the official scribe of the council, described it as, quote, the municipal department of the kingdom of God set upon the earth and from which all law emanates for the rule, government, and control of all nations, kingdoms, and tongues, and peoples under the whole heavens. The council physically anointed Joseph Smith as, quote, the prophet, the priest, and the king of all the earth, continuing the goal of generating the correct circumstances for the millennium and seeking to position the church and its leaders for that time. Shortly after Smith's anointing, he was arrested for ordering the destruction of a printing press that had led to the publication of information about the practice of polygamy and polyandry. Um, a mob swarmed the jail where he and a few other leaders of the church were being held, and the mob killed both Joseph and his brother Hiram. The Council of 50 shortly afterwards anointed Brigham Young as its leader and as the king and president of the kingdom of God in the world. Under Young, the secret council assisted in the Mormon exodus from Nauvoo, Illinois and the eventual migration across the Rocky Mountains. Young relied upon the results of scouting missions by members of the council in choosing the Great Basin as a destination for their exodus from Nauvoo over several other alternate possibilities, including Texas, California, Oregon, and Vancouver Island, BC. (laughs) That was always very interesting to me. The rapid colonization of a massive area of land by Mormon settlers was used as the basis for founding a provisional state of Deseret that was proposed to the U.S. Congress in 1849. It was proposed to include Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming. Not all of those states, but portions of those. I think all of one, perhaps? No, portions of all. Um, while this proposal was not approved by Congress, they did grant Utah official territorial status in 1850, with portions of present-day Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Nevada, and Wyoming included. Since its founding in 1830, the Mormon churches sought to bring converts from their homes in North America and Europe to the cities and regions where it was building strength at the time—whether New York, Missouri, Ohio, Illinois, or Utah. The church established a fund. To aid converts to emigrate to Utah, which was called the Perpetual Emigration Fund. In 1882, the United States Congress passed the Edmonds Anti Polygamy Anti-polygamy Act, which declared that polygamy was a felony, proposed by U.S. Senator George Edmonds. All of the top leaders of the LDS Church were practicing polygamists, and later, in President Grover Cleveland's annual address to Congress in 1885, he discussed the issue, saying, quote, The strength, the perpetuity, and the destiny of the nation rest upon our homes. There should be no relaxation but uh, in the firm but just execution of the law now in operation, and I should be glad to approve such further discreet legislation as will rid the country of this blot upon its fair fame. Since the people upholding polygamy in our territories are reinforced by immigration from other lands, I recommend that a law be passed to prevent the importation of Mormons into the country which has definite echoes of some things that have been happening more recently. (laughs) Polygamous leaders, at all levels, went into hiding for years. When some were caught by federal U.S. Marshals, they were sent to prison. Although the church challenged the legality of the laws that had outlawed their polygamous practices, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the laws in 1890. Charles O'Ricard, the founder of Cardston, was one of the polygamous leaders uh, in Utah called the State President. Card was caught by U.S. federal marshals and arrested on July 26, 1886. Oh, that's Grover, Cleveland. That's Charles R. Card. Um, the Deseret News issued a report later that day about the arrest, providing enough details for those interested to say their goodbyes to Card or to help engineer an escape. President Card was arrested this morning about 9.30 by Deputy Marshal Guard his house was searched, and several members of his family <coughs> subpoenaed will leave for Ogden on a two o'clock train. <clears throat> Card was able to slip away from the marshals on the train to Ogden, and was helped by members of the congregation that he led to escape on a horse. He then hid in a series of houses for two months, and in September was sent to Canada to find a site for a Mormon colony across the U.S. border and out of the reach of federal marshals. LDS leaders had previously sent representatives on a similar mission to establish settlements across the border in Mexico. Card and his companions traveled through Kamloops to Cranbrook and eventually took a train to Calgary. From Calgary, they turned south towards the U.S. border and they reached standoff on October 22nd. Card recorded in his journal that he thought that the area near the Belly River or the St. Mary's River would be a good place to establish a colony and quote a mission to the Lamanites. Hard returned to Salt Lake in secret and met with church leaders who were still in hiding from federal marshals. Uh, and while he was in Utah, Congress passed an even more restricted act, and U.S. Marshals stepped up their efforts to arrest Mormon leaders. Four years after passing the original act, this new act um, effectively disincorporated Mormonism as a religious institution due to non-compliance with legislation, and the act authorized the federal government to confiscate all church properties valued at over $50,000 at the time, and it ended the perpetual immigration fund. Card gathered a small group of colonizers and quickly left for the border before he could be found and arrested. Card and two others came ahead of the main body to choose the location of their new home in April 1887. They considered lands near Standoff, sites on nearby ranches, and up and down the St. Mary River before they decided on the current site of Cardston, which he described as being three miles up Lee's Creek. By June 3rd, the rest of the colonists had arrived with their supplies, and Card began to survey the new community and lay it out in the forms prescribed by the Platte of Zion. Card made a few amendments to the platte for his community. His blocks were the same size as those that Smith originally designed, but he only surveyed a grid of 12 blocks, which was smaller than intended originally. Cardson's road widths were a little smaller than Smith's, which were 132 feet, and Card's were 99 feet. So even though our roads are very wide in southern Alberta, they are not as wide as they were supposed to be. Uh, when Card resurveyed the town site again in 1894, he expanded the original size of the community to a mile square, which was the size of the first plan, but, no, uh, but still a half a mile square shorter than the second version. In 1898, that's Lee's Creek, this is the Card House, which is a local museum in Cardston. In 1898, the leaders of the Mormon Church entered into a contract with Sir Elliot Galt. We have a statue of that front, and Charles McGrath. The contract required the Church to provide skilled laborers to build an irrigation system, from Kimball to Sterling. They were also required by contract to populate two settlements along the planned irrigation line with at least 250 settlers each. These two communities are today the towns of Sterling and McGrath, or I guess the village of Sterling and the town of McGrath. Voluntary immigration of colonists was slow despite propaganda put out by the church. Mormon leaders eventually resorted to calling men on missions to build the canal and called others on missions to actually settle their families in southern Alberta permanently in order to meet the church's contractual obligations. When Sterling was first settled in May 1898, Card surveyed a site exactly one square mile in size. He divided the land into blocks of 10 acres, just like in the original plat, and each of those lots he divided into eight, so that each lot was 2.5 acres, which is several times larger than originally intended. These lots, would allow people to build barns and animal shelters in addition to growing large gardens and orchards. This is different from the original plat in which animal barns and stables were actually not permitted in town. During the 1800s the different branches of the Mormon church established hundreds of colonies on indigenous lands in what is today Canada, the US, and Mexico. Most of these colonies were built using the plat design as a base map. Well, that's sterling. It's nice. Uh, but many of them were built with modifications. Since then, much of the construction and colonization efforts of the LDS Church have focused on constructing churches and temples in major cities across the world, and on building a few private colleges and universities. The days of building towns and cities from scratch seemed to have been left in the past, but the financial and landholdings of the LDS Church have continued to increase over the decades. The LDS Church is currently the largest private landholder in the entire state of Florida, owning 2% of the state's entire land mass, which with global warming will probably increase Mm -hmm. as the total amount of land decreases. Mm -hmm. The church has plans that have been approved by Osceola County in Florida for future development of a 19,000 acre section of this particular ranch outlined in red, which is a total of 672,000 acres. The proposed 19,000-acre development um, would house half a million individuals. The development isn't planned to be completed until until, until 2080, and there is speculation among environmentalists in the legal community in Florida, based off plans released in the Church's long-term lawsuit about water rights on its land, that the Church is actually planning on using the water on the Florida (coughs) property to begin bottling and selling that resource. Other large-scale developments that the church has conducted include a 32-story, mixed-use, high-end residential tower in the museum district of Philadelphia called the Alexander. The Alexander is estimated to have cost about $120 million to construct. It includes 258 high-end apartments and 13 townhouses, as well as retail space, a community club room, a rooftop deck, and a large courtyard. From a 2018 article in LDS Daily about the Alexanders' development, quote, Since the Church's Temple, Meeting House, and Alexander Apartments project in Philadelphia, more developers are investing in an area that was once considered blighted by the city's planners. Quote, or subquote, I guess. It sent a signal in the area that A, people want to live there, B, there's activity going on, said Paul Levi, president of the city Center district. Quote, and I think it will have a very positive effect over the next three to four years. In Joseph Smith's day, he focused the Mormon Church's activities in the public sphere on providing housing and basic needs to members and citizens through a form of theocratic government in his version of Zion. In Brigham Young's day, it focused more on controlling and communizing the means of production. Both of these systems required the surrender of private property to the church and the rendering of excess goods created by an individual's household to the church. Today, the corporation of the LDS Church is focused on financial investments, land and business management, and capitalist ventures that primarily benefit business owners and investors. According to information gathered and released by independent website, Mormon Leaks, the LDS Church has connections to, or owns, U.S. stock market holdings valued at at least $32 billion. I wish I knew the equivalent number of Jeff Bezos's, that is, (laughs) but I do not. Uh, The shift from creating self-sustaining communities to supporting business owners and investors can be most clearly seen in the massive investments that the church made in downtown Salt Lake City beginning in 2003. The LDS church bought, demolished, and redeveloped an entire city block adjacent to the church's temple square and church administration buildings into a high-end shopping center called the City Creek Center. This was an effort to increase economic activity in downtown Salt Lake. The process started in 2006 and the City Creek Center opened in 2012. The church spent an estimated $1.5 billion on the development of the City Creek Center, which was part of a larger $5 billion plan to revitalize the downtown core. In comparison, the total value of humanitarian aid worldwide done by the LDS church between 1985 and 2011 totals $1.4 billion. It's a clear shift of priorities for the religious corporation, in community building, from ensuring that basic needs for all residents are met, to encouraging capital success. However, the Platte of Zion and some of the principles behind it have been adopted by one oil industry millionaire who has begun buying land in preparation to build a new series of of cities based on the concepts found in the Platte of Zion. In 2016, a local librarian in Virginia named Nicole Antal discovered that millionaire David Hall was buying significant tracts of land in rural Vermont, near the town of Sharon, which is the birthplace of Joseph Smith. David Hall intended to build a model community called New Vistas. This community intended to house 20,000 people, much like the original Platte Zion, and will test using technology to to combine population density with self-sufficiency. David Hall said about the community: "New Vistas is my modern interpretation of Joseph Smith's community documents. The plat describes a very low footprint, 20,000 people on only three square miles, and everything else was supposed to be wilderness." New Vistas Foundation argues sustainable living in the modern world requires high-density urban development, pointing out that sprawl consumes too much energy and other resources, not just in urban areas, but in urban as, but in rural as well. The plans are very detailed and are extremely interesting. The organizational structure appears to be somewhere right of center if placed on a scale between Smith's plan and current LDS development plans. It would be, quote, organized according to a private capitalistic economic structure. The community is not a political entity, but a productive enterprise, much like a company town. However, in 2018, after much pushback from locals, Hall announced that he was abandoning his plan, saying, I'm tired of the drama. (laughs) Utopias have been part of the mythology of humankind for millennia. Crafting a perfect home, a perfect community, and a perfect nation has been the dream of authors, dictators, authoritarians, theologians, prophets, and citizens. (coughs) When Smith recorded the Platte of Zion, it was not the first, and it was not the last entry in the field of utopian city plans. In the podcast Nice Try, Host avery Truffleman re-examines some of history's most fascinating attempts to build perfect communities. While she doesn't touch on the Platte design or the United Order under either Smith or Young, she notes that utopian plans have something in common. Quote, somewhere along the line, things don't go according to plan. As she points out in the closing words of each episode, utopias do not exist. Smith's efforts at creating a string of utopian communities and communes across the eastern United States his changing vision of how that would be possible, his repeated failures, the literally hundreds of attempts by Brigham Young to create utopias, the current efforts of the corporate LDS church to use economic and market forces to beautify and enhance rich neighborhoods and metro areas, the efforts of Mormon millionaires to marry corporate paternalism with Smith's original city layouts and beliefs, all of them have failed to provide or to produce the kind of utopian society that will usher in the millennial reign of Jesus. Their efforts at catalytic millennialism have failed, and along the way, the ideological and theological center place of Mormon theology and ideology has shifted dramatically. From 24 temples occupying the center space of a city down to one, from self-sufficiency and equitable distribution of resources to enriching the already rich, from expanding colonies internationally to an intensely nationalistic America-first approach to development and investment, the center is simply not what it once was. The efforts of Smith's initial vision for his utopian worldwide civilization is now baked into the small communities in southern Alberta. Wide roads, huge grids, center points focusing the community on old church buildings. But these communities are changing, albeit slowly. Old churches have now become civic centers, libraries, theaters. New subdivisions don't extend in ten-acre square blocks and new subdivisions cap some low-traffic roads in an attempt to create safer roads for pedestrians. There are no additional city grids being laid out side to side to fill up the world as originally intended. Lots are subdivided smaller and smaller to increase density and affordability. Few now choose to plant an orchard in their massive backyards, but some do. While knowledge of the plat may be somewhat uncommon, Its structure continues to shape the way that people experience those communities, and it continues to attract some believers to live there. Thanks. might have been the the reason behind that is when when the Mormon community built the Kirtland Temple its function was significantly different from all the other temples that have been built since then because it was used as a place of worship but also as a community gathering space and they held dances there and all those other things and so the thought is that maybe those 24 temples were Primarily religious buildings, but then they would also be used to facilitate community events as well Which is actually substantially similar to the way that people experience life in some of the smaller rural Mormon communities where some of the primary social events in the community are also held at the church, even though they may be secular in nature But yeah, you're right. There is no uh, There's no spaces laid out for for schools, for grocery stores, for any kind of stores. It's all residential. No hospitals, no, no. Yeah,
2: this is very interesting. That's in the original Plan of Zion, <clears throat> but the subsequent ones um, are based at the, the center of the town, Sterling and McGrath the examples, have a place for the church, the school, and, and the businesses. Yeah. Uh, in 1999 at our Sterling uh, 100th anniversary, Lynn Roosevelt spoke and uh, he said that this, the plot that Sterling was based on was to give the benefits of society to the, to the people. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but Sterling is an national historic site. Yes. Because we're the best preserved Mormon agricultural village in Canada, or at least we were back in
1: Back when the designation was awarded, there's actually a picture. The first one in here is of the uh, Nicholson
2: Farms. Yeah, I'm vice president of the historical society. We use that as our focal point for history. Mm Just as a matter of interest, Saturday we have what the junk sale at the Nicholson Mm Farms. It's an amazing opportunity to come by all sorts of crafts. Oh, they, 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 they got it. it's, it's an awesome experience. Cool, thank you. Back. Oh, I well, was just going to mention, I think upstairs in the Kirtland Temple was also the School of the Prophets was held there, which was education on secular topics as well as religious topics. So yeah. so there was some education purpose uh, for the temples there yeah. originally.
1: The other thing that that reminds me was the, the brick store that Joseph had ran in... Not really. Yes. Also had mixed use in it where it was a store and a school of profits and a number of other things in one. So restricting buildings by usage wasn't perhaps foremost in his mind. He may not have considered that people couldn't just run businesses out of their homes ad nauseum. Any other questions? Right. Sorry. Hi.
3: It's a one, recognizing that it's sensitive um, in nature. Um, I just wanted to clear down this, of course, because people love it. The endowment session right now, and I know this stuff probably you online, anyway, but might put that a really little to add perspective, um, Am I right in, in hearing that, in part of the ceremony, our members volunteering that at any point if church leadership um, instructs them to they are willing and will volunteer to do the consecration conservation and ask Yes. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The the language used is um, expansive. The language used in, in that covenant is expansive. So it, expansive. Yeah. <laughs> <so> expansive. No. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be that also. Yeah. yeah it's, very, it's very inclusive language in terms of what your covenant
2: could potentially give to the
1: church and called upon to do so. Yeah, okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And sorry, just um, I was just kind of surprised by what you mentioned that I, I would have loved more information on. Um, part about the uh, burning of the press and um -hmm. and you mentioned polyandry as as well as polygamy so i was just wondering if you could
1: expand on a little bit further because i'm just quite interested that there are being practicing that in this area too sure um so for a number of years uh joseph smith and a few of his inner circle were engaging in polygamy but they were also in engaging in polygamy by marrying multiple other women to themselves they were at times marrying women who were currently wed to other men as well. So, polyandry is when Did you have. F- Essentially, yeah. yeah Polyandry is just kind of. And they I know in, a,
3: in FDA, like the FLDS yeah. communities, there's a concerted effort for. Um, <laughs> sorry, I should give them. Some of the younger men are kind of driven away from potential spouses. Yes. And so that they can be saved for the more elderly, the children in the community, that are more powerful. Right? Yeah. So there wasn't an effort at that point to disband those marriages. They stayed married to those partners that also then yeah. shared another
1: partner in the marriage partnership. Yeah.
2: Very
1: interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh. Okay. Orson and one more. No. Pike. Oh, Orson Pike? or Pike? No. Proud. Orson Pike or Parley uh, he actually uh, engaged in a polyandrous relationship with a woman who was wed to a non-member in California. And that man sought him out and killed him. So it sometimes had deadly consequences. I'm
3: surprised I didn't for the
4: first time. OK, thank you. Yeah. Fire away. So a comment and then a, a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name's Ian McLaughlin. I'm, I'm an emeritus at, at the university, okay. and I, <laughs> <laughs> I only have a BA. <laughs> I I wrote a piece on Sterling and the Plan of Zion in the Canadian Encyclopedia. And there's some references there. So uh, if anybody's interested in uh, Sterling, and I think this gentleman here. (laughs) Yes, nice to see you again. Uh, If if you're interested, Canadian Encyclopedia's got the the piece and got some some references to uh, to, to add a little bit of color to what you've already presented. So the question, uh, I, I was... Um, Impressed by the point you made about uh, the Platte of Zion leading to a kind of uh, settlement pattern that was a rural scale urban settlement uh, and very, very low density. And I began thinking about America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. And broad-acre City, and this yes. was Wright's concept. Uh, what I don't know is was Wright influenced by that most American of all churches, the Church of Latter Day Saints, and was was Wright just sort of taking taking Smith's concept and repackaging it as one of the formative uh, theoretical bases of. of uh, American architectural theory, models and design? Uh, Or, if he wasn't, is there something quintessentially American about the Platte of Zion? Uh, This is a country that uh, has the the, the territorial expansion ethos. And it's, it's one of these ideas whose time had come and ends up being discovered separately and slightly differently, of course, by Smith in 1837 Mm -hmm. and Frank Lloyd Wright when he writes about Broadacre City in about
1: 1937. It's, It's very possible because he predates Wright by so much, but Smith's, um ideas about how to lay out cities like he, he expanded much larger in scale than other communities that were being built at the time very like larger than new york city blocks but that style had already really kind of cemented into the american consciousness so it's possible he was drawing directly off smith and it's possible that he's just influenced by other things that also influenced smith mm. it's yeah very Is there information
3: about the plaid system and the church history library or museums?
1: Yes, there's a lot of information there about it.
3: Have you learned um, much about Cartwright? When they came up and made the settlement out in the the Cartson area, Mm -hmm. uh, what do you know about any kind of um, discussion or negotiation that occurred with Indigenous people here at that
1: time? Um, Red Crow actually went and visited them uh, shortly after they began building houses out there. Um, They spent some time Mm -hmm. while they were On their first expedition, they spent some time in standoff, getting to know some of the Blackfoot leaders there. And then on their return, they stayed there for a few days while they were scouting for a suitable location. And so there was uh, a relationship there for quite a while. Um, Offhand, I'm not sure how deep the relationship went, but I know that Red Crow himself and dignitaries visited Cartston within the first year or so after
2: the community was found. Anybody else? Yeah? With present day uh, housing developments in Cardston and Sterling, uh, is there any uh, uh, design that uh, is tall, reminiscent of the plaza the, the design, or is it more contemporary with crescents and uh, curved streets and that type of thing?
1: I'm much more familiar with Cardston than I am with developments in Sterling. Um, in Cardston, there is little that would be seen as extending the plat, except for their connections to the streets. So those those through streets continue on the same grid, but many of the streets that are less trafficked have been capped and just stopped. And that's when you see the subdivisions with the curving streets and, and much more dense the roundabouts and things like that. So yeah, the new, the new developments as they're being built are much more like subdivisions and communities that are being built in Lethbridge in and all over BC and, and everywhere in North America. They're very North American-styled and less of Zion styled And again, if you came from Vancouver Island, was yeah. is
2: there any uh, the of Zion design in that community? Or?
1: It's, it's kind of similar where the, the old downtown area is in a strict grid. But as soon as you get out of that, you run into the river, you run into the mountains right. and valleys, and so there's roads just going all over the place. I mm-hmm.
3: um, was under the impression of some type of church leadership proclamation that there wasn't going to be development out of the British Columbia area because of the, the feeling that there was going to be an imminent earthquake in that region. So there was a, like a directly like a, plan not to build the church up in that region. Have I got that correct? Or is that mm-hmm. you heard that?
1: No, they, they built the Vancouver Temple there, what, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, not that long ago. So they're still developing. They're still building buildings. There's still missionary work occurring for example,
2: with the Church. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just a comment. You talk about finding your way in Raymond. I'm start. Have you ever tried to find your way on the west side? That's true. If you didn't
1: have GPS. Or thank goodness for Google Maps and Siri. Yeah. <laughs> That's where it's at. Cool. Thank you everybody for coming. Uh, if anybody wants to stick around and has questions, they want to ask one-on-one, that's great, but thank you so much.
0: big thank, uh, thank you to Brian Sweet for being here and sharing his research and knowledge. Um, I learned a lot, so I'm going to be looking at some of these communities a little bit differently when I'm out traveling in southern Alberta. Um, I just wanted to mention upcoming programs. So um, Thursday evening, tomorrow night, we have a talk, an archives program on the history of the McIntyre Ranch. Uh, we also have our Black language classes starting tomorrow, um, and our Indigenous History program comes back starting on Tuesday morning. And if you're more interested in the programs, you can grab a calendar up at the front desk. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you for having more round of applause. <laughs>